All right, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and find Luke chapter 15. We're going to be there today. Today, we're kicking off a new sermon series that's really timely as we approach our 13th birthday as a church. Uh, That kind of blows my mind to look back on the last 13 years and to realize that on Easter, we're going to have that sort of significant birthday, where as a church, we're moving into the teenage years. Uh, I kind of feel like that as a church. I feel like maybe we're a bit awkward. We've got acne as a group, Um, but... It's been really, it's been really beautiful and it's been really sweet looking back on planting this church and, and just remembering that I didn't know if it was going to make it or not. Like, I didn't know if God was going to breathe on this. Uh, my wife and I, we just sort of sensed that Jesus had given us a love for the gospel and a love for the city. And we pushed our chips into the middle, not knowing what was going to happen. And to be here 13 years later and to see marks of health and evidences of grace that we couldn't have engineered that are all pointing to God's goodness, that's really beautiful and it's really encouraging. And I think as we start to prepare for that birthday, I think it would be really helpful for every single person whether you're new to Frontline, like this might be your first week, or whether you've been here since the beginning when we were meeting in our living room, I think if you're here today, this is a beautiful moment for us to do some really focused, intentional work on what the dream of this church really is, what the dream of this church really is. And the reason I say that is because the hope and dream for this church is not that we would be yet another internally focused Midwestern church that sort of warehouses people and money for our comfort. Like, I don't want to be that. We don't want to be a part of that. We don't want to be a church that's all about just sort of acquiring more Christians from other churches and then just hanging on to stuff and hopefully building better and better facilities until we kind of have like the Jesus Dome in Oklahoma City with the perfect facility for the whole fam. Like, that, that's not the dream. There's nothing wrong with buildings and there's nothing wrong with growth. But the dream for this church is not that we would be sort of an internally focused institution. The dream for this church is that we would be a part of a missional movement in our city and our state. A missional movement in our city and our state. Um, for me, walking through the book of Acts with you guys, which we did for months, it was really inspiring to just see that the local church in the book of Acts was not... It was not uh, sort of a club for Christians that they could join after meeting Jesus and then sort of just do life, us four and no more. What's breathtaking about the, the book of Acts is that Luke is laying down the history of the church of Jesus as a missional movement that exists for people that aren't even yet a part of it. Like it's, it's this beautiful catalytic movement that God uses to get the good news of Jesus that changes everything into cities and into villages and into towns and into nations. And what we saw when we walked through the book of Acts is that the local church was not supposed to be sort of uh, this group of people that just arrives and then they go on cruise control. The local church is always to be this group of people who are first and foremost marked by following Jesus. And if you're following Jesus, you go where Jesus goes. And where Jesus is going through the Holy Spirit is towards people that need the good news of the gospel. So for the next five weeks, uh, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, this is going to be really helpful because you're going to get a snapshot of, I think, the dream of Jesus for the church. And as you get a snapshot of Jesus's dream for the church, I think you'll get a better snapshot of actually who God is, who God is. So for the next five weeks, we're going to talk about being more than just a church focused on being an internally 
an internally focused group of people hanging out and being comfy, we're going to look at the church of Jesus as a missional movement. We're going to dream together for Edmonds. We're going to dream together for Guthrie. We're going to dream together for South OKC and Moore and Norman. Uh, We're going to dream together for Midwest City and Dell City and Yukon. And we're going to dream together for places like Lawton, Oklahoma and places like Muskogee and McAllister. And we're going to actually ask Jesus to do something that we have no control over that we can't make happen, that we can't engineer. We're going to ask Jesus to take what we have today as a core group of people, about 3,000 people that gather together on Sundays in our four congregations. We're going to ask him to take this core group of people and do something really beautiful to his glory by moving us towards his heart for people that are far from him. That we could be about planting and strengthening churches all over our state that we could see Jesus do things in the next 13 years that actually are beyond what he even did in the first 13 years, even though it was so beautiful. So today with that in mind, we're gonna start with the most important mark of a missional movement. We're gonna talk about the center of a missional movement and the center of a missional movement is not a philosophy. It's not, it's not even another religion. The center of missional movement is something that's altogether different. It's called the gospel. It's called the gospel. And the gospel is a different category than philosophy. And the gospel is a different category than man-centered religion or ritual. The gospel is something altogether unique and distinct in the Christian tradition and in scripture. And the gospel, the gospel is what actually forms and directs and guides not just the church gathered when we get together and preach and teach and receive communion, but the gospel is what forms individual growth and sanctification. And it's what leads us out on mission as we scatter to our jobs and to our neighborhoods with the heart of Jesus. So with that in mind, um, today we're going to talk about gospel centrality And we're going to look at one of Jesus's most famous teaching moments in the whole Bible. Happens in Luke chapter 15, And in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, you get an idea of who Jesus is talking to. Um, It's really difficult to understand scripture unless you ask who wrote it and to whom is it written. And in this text, what's going to happen in verses 1 and 2, Jesus is about to have a conversation with a really particular group of people about what the heart of the Christian faith really is. Take your Bible, look at these two verses. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. Okay, here's what's happening. In the beginning of Luke 15, there's two really distinct group of people that are around Jesus in this moment. And the two groups of people are tax collectors and sinners, that's group one. And the other group are Pharisees and scribes, that's group two. And these two groups are really different, but at the end of the day, Jesus is going to say that they have something deeply in common that's easy to miss. So what are these two groups? Well, tax collectors, first of all, were not just guys that were trying to sort of make a living and do an honest day's labor. Tax collectors were considered to be the lowest of the low in Israel. They were traitors to their fellow Jews because here's what they would do. Essentially, they would get a commission from Rome to to manipulate and coerce their own neighbors into giving not only the required taxes, but embezzling more than actually what was expected so that they could then 
line their own pockets and fund the brutal regime of Rome against Jews. So like, can you imagine if Canada took over OKC, right, with, with all their military might and force and their, and their baseball and all the things that they do in Canada, like maple syrup. And just, just imagine, if you will, that Canada comes over the border, Canada sets up shop, it's a brutal regime, there's a lot of persecution and pain, and your next door neighbor is like robbing from you to fund their military might. That's a tax collector. They were unclean. They were not welcome in the temple. They didn't keep the law of Moses. They were outside of the religious life of Israel. And then in that group of tax collectors, Jesus also includes this word sinners. And it's easy to see that word and think that that just means the same thing we think it means in the Midwest, but that's actually more like a people group of folks that have sort of pulled eject on all the religious and moral traditions of Israel. These are people that are trying to find self-expression either through sexual liberation, like uh, they're cutting against the grain of sort of the law of Moses in the purity restrictions of what it means to be a Jew. So their diet is not pure. Their lifestyle is not pure. They don't go to temple. Uh, Some of them had professions that were considered unpure. Some of them are alcoholics. Some of them are prostitutes. And what's happening in this text that's really interesting is that whole group of people, the tax collectors and the sinners, they're really fascinated by what Jesus is saying. So they're gathering around Jesus and Jesus is eating with them, which in the Middle East 2,000 years ago in particular was something really intimate. Jesus is dining with them. He's hanging out with them. They're fascinated by Jesus. They're really interested in what he has to say. And this other group of people, The scribes and the Pharisees, they're really offended that Jesus is talking to those sinful people. So who are these scribes and Pharisees? Well, that's a different group. This group is the religious elite of Jesus's day. These are the ones that are varsity at being religious. They not only go to to temple, uh, they try to keep every, every particular minute detail of the law of Moses. They eat according to Jewish dietary law. They dress according to Jewish dietary law. They are tithing out of their spice cabinets. Like these are people that they are in the life of the religious culture of Israel, all in committed. They're going as far as they can go to be pure, to be distinct, to be holy, and to be religious. And here's what's crazy about these two groups. Um, On the surface, they couldn't be more different Because you have this one group that sort of rebelled against God in their freedom, in their hedonism, in rejecting the scripture. And then you have this other group that actually wants nothing to do with Jesus, that doesn't like his message or his methods, and yet they're the religious people. And what's going to happen in this text is Jesus is actually going to unpack that the gospel is something different than religion and the gospel is something different than just sort of human hedonistic self-liberation. The gospel is this distinct other category that's actually really miraculous and really beautiful. And both of these groups, what they have in common is their deep need for Jesus. So, These Pharisees and tax collectors are grumbling and they're complaining. And in response to them, Jesus is going to tell three parables. The first parable is the parable of the lost sheep. Look at verse three. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing, And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, 
rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. And so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This is the lost sheep. Well, then he tells another story. This is the story of the lost coin. Look at verse eight. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. And so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then Jesus adds a third story. And sometimes we wrongly think that the third story is about one lost son, but the truth is Jesus is telling the story of two lost sons. Look what happens in verse 11. And he said to them, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had And he took a journey into a far country and there he squandered the property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and had compassion. And he ran and he embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Here's what's happening in this story. You've got this young man who does something that's scandalous in our culture, but 2,000 years ago in Jewish culture, it would have been completely unheard of. This young man goes to his dad, who's a wealthy, dignified Middle Eastern landowner. And he walks up to his dad, and in essence, here's what he says. I don't want you, I want your stuff. In fact, what this kid is saying is that, dad, I really wish that you would die so that I could get my inheritance and not have to deal with being in relationship with you. Now, most of Jesus's culture of the day, if this ever actually happened, the dad wouldn't have given him any money. The dad would have literally beaten his son and driven his son away from the family. But this dad does something crazy. He does something scandalous. He actually liquidates property He probably sells fields and sells land and he takes the inheritance that was gonna belong to his son after his death and he gives it to him. This son pockets the money and he goes to Vegas, right? 
and he squanders the money every last dime. And while the money is still flowing, like he has friends, some of us know that story, while the drugs are flowing, while the drinks are being poured, while there's food to eat, there's everybody that wants to hang out. Then he runs out of cash and all of a sudden he's by himself broke and a famine hits. And the famine's so severe, he starts working as a Jewish guy doing the most unclean thing a Jewish guy could possibly do. He's feeding pigs. And not only is he feeding pigs, but he's actually jealous of what they're eating. Scripture says he comes to his senses and he comes up with this plan, right? Like sometimes we do this with relationships and with God. We come up with a plan and his plan is this. Uh, I'm going to rehearse a speech to my dad that's going to basically say, I know I can't be your son anymore. I know I've completely broken all the laws of scripture. I've completely dishonored you, but hire me as a servant to live outside of your house and just let me work as one of your hands so at least I don't starve to death. He travels back and something crazy happens. Like I know in our culture, this doesn't seem like a big deal, but 2000 years ago for a wealthy land-owning, dignified Middle Eastern man to do this was completely unheard of. The dad sees his son a long way off, right? And he literally, he hikes up his robe, which old dignified Middle Eastern men did not do. And instead of casually walking to his son, he sprints towards this wayward kid. And when he gets to him, instead of beating him, he embraces him with hugs and kisses. And the young son starts to rehearse his speech. He's like, dad, I know I can't be your son. Here's the plan, hire me as a servant. And the dad just shuts him up by saying, bring the best robe. That would have been the dad's own robe. That would have been a robe to cover this kid's nakedness and shame and the filth and dirt of pigs. And then he calls for a ring and that ring would be a symbol of that son being accepted back as a full heir of everything that the father owned. And he puts the ring on his finger and he covers him with the robe. And then he says, we're gonna have an epic party, kill the fatted calf, This is in a culture that rarely ever ate meat except for special occasions. He doesn't kill a goat or a chicken. He says, bring me the best beef and the best wine because my son was dead and now he's back. Now, let's just stop here for a second before we read the rest of this. This is what is being experienced by all of these tax collectors and sinners as they meet with Jesus. That the heart of the father for those that are far from God is coming through Christ the desire to pursue them, like, like a shepherd finding a sheep, like a woman finding her coin, like a father finding his son that was gone. This is the heart of Jesus for those people that were unclean and far from God. People in our city, people in our state that have been hurt in church and they've reacted and they've left and now they're more pagan than most pagan people that never went to church. Jesus wants to pursue them our atheist friends, our agnostic friends, people that have been wounded by religion, people that are living hedonistic lifestyles, the prostitutes and strippers in our city, the drug dealers and gang members, the the businessmen that have no scruples, like the people in our city that we look at and we're like, oh man, there's no way you could ever make it into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is telling these stories to say, actually, he's gonna accomplish something that moves towards irreligious people, towards rebellious people, towards people that tried to find freedom and life by rejecting God and morality. Jesus is gonna move towards those people in grace and love. 
we could stop here and, and that would be like good news and it would be great, but it would also be missing the point of this story because Jesus is actually not telling the story to the tax collectors and sinners. He's telling the story to the religious guys. And this is not the story of one lost son. This is the story of two lost sons. Look what happens next in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and he asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he's received him back safe and sound. Verse 28, now listen to these words. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees that thought that they had God on lock and religion nailed down. This brother says this, he was angry and he refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, not with respect. He doesn't say, dear dad, look what he says. Look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your commands but you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours, he doesn't even call him his brother. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, the dad, son, you are always with me. All that I have is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and he is alive. He was lost and he's found. Now here's what's crazy in this story. You would look at these two brothers and you would say, oh, they're totally different, right? Like the younger brother is like the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Uh, He's trying to find freedom in irreligion. He's going to break with tradition. He's going to break with family values. He's going to break with religious institutions. He's going to try and find freedom in hedonism and and self-actualization through sex and money and partying and drinking and all the things that we look at and say, oh yeah, that's clearly, obviously worldly. He's so different than this other brother who stays at home and keeps all the rules. This older brother, in fact, says, I've never disobeyed you. And the father doesn't contradict him. He's not like, actually, you disobey all the time. It's true. This is an obedient kid. This kid follows the rules. He does what he's told. This kid dots the I's and he crosses the T's. But here's what's crazy. Even though the younger son rejects the father for the father's stuff in an irreligious way that we look at and spot instantly as lostness, the older brother actually is doing the exact same thing only down a different path. Here's what I mean. The younger brother looks at his dad and says, I wish you were dead. I don't want you. I want your stuff. But the older brother says this. I don't want you. I just want everything you owe me due to my obedience. And instead of delighting in relationship with his father, instead of feeling like, oh, father, your heart is glad because this son of yours has returned and I want to be with you. Here's what he does. He completely insults the father almost to the same degree as the other brother. Here's what he does. The dad throws this party, right? And and this was not like, this was not like a boring, like Midwestern party. This is a Middle Eastern, like throwdown. Like the wine is flowing, the bread is baking, the the fatty calf is roasting over a fire. This is a throwdown. People are dancing. Like this is such an epic party. This guy hears the sound of dancing. Like that's never happened at a white person's party. Okay, (laughs) this is, 
this is a party, man. This is a festival. And what probably would have happened is this guy probably would have invited the entire village to be a part of this celebration of the homecoming of his son. And what does the older brother do? He stands outside in protest to his dad and he crosses his arms and he refuses to come in. And the father does something just as scandalous as he did for the younger brother when he ran to him. The father leaves his guests. He leaves the warmth of the fire and the sound of the music and the smell of the meat. And he goes to his pouting, stubborn, rebellious, but obedient child. And he entreats him to come into the party. Friends, Jesus is doing something here that is profound if we're going to be a gospel-centered movement. What Jesus is doing here is he's pointing out that there's two different ways to be really far from God that are both equally damning. Only one might even be more dangerous because we don't even know we're lost when we go that way. What Jesus is saying is that you can be really far from God in your irreligion in your hedonism, in your antagonistic fist raising towards God, in your atheism, in your agnosticism, in in your whatever, fill in the blank. You can miss God that way, but you can equally miss God through the route of morality and tradition and religion in which you try to control God to get his stuff when you don't actually want God himself. This older brother is a picture of a large portion of the mission field that Jesus has called us to engage in our city, state, and world. Like right now, just let the sobriety sink in that there are people all over our state that are attending church like they do every single Sunday. There are multitudes, multitudes of people that go to church and pray and give away money and listen to Christian music and do Christian activities and fund Christian programs and do all of the trappings of Christianity that aren't necessarily captured by the grace of God and in love with the glory and beauty of God in Christ Jesus. And the scary thing in this story is that this older brother is justifying himself by looking down his nose at his younger brother. He's saying, hey, I always obey. I'm not like this son of yours who devours wealth on prostitutes. I'm here, I'm obeying. But here's what's crazy. His heart is just as far, it's just as far from the father as the younger brother's heart was. He doesn't want relationship with him. He wants to be able to say, hey, I've obeyed, you owe me. Religion always says, I'm going to get God to do what I want him to do. I'm going to have God in my back pocket by controlling him through my rituals and through my obedience. And this story is really scary because Jesus just leaves as a cliffhanger, right? I mean, he gets to the end. You don't even know what happens. Does the kid come in? Does he refuse to go in? Does he leave? What happens? But what Jesus is doing here by ending the story so abruptly is he's inviting us to look at a couple of things. And I want to give them to you clearly, as clearly as I can. The first thing Jesus wants you to see is that ending the story this way is an invitation to both the irreligious and the religious to come to the feast of God's grace. All three of these stories, the sheep and the coin and the son, all three of these stories, they end with what? parties. They end with feasting. They end with music and dancing. And what Jesus is saying is, whether you're running from God in rebellion, 
through your self-actualization, through your desire to worship money, through hedonistic pursuits, or whether you're running from God by trying to be so good that you don't actually need a savior. Either way you're running from God, there's an invitation through faith in Jesus to come into the party of God's family, which is not about your good deeds. It's about the finished work of Jesus. It's an invitation. And... Isn't it interesting that in the first two stories, someone goes to seek out the sheep and seek out the coin? Where's the seeking in this third story? Well, here's what Jesus is doing. He's telling us about a really bad older brother so that we long for a way better older brother. See, here's what I mean. Um, This older brother should have so loved his dad that when he saw his dad's heart breaking for his young son, He would have said to his dad, dad, I really love you and I really love my brother. And in light of the Old Testament, I am my brother's keeper. So I'm going to pack my bag and I'm going to go find him. I'm actually going to walk to that distant land and I'm going to pursue my brother and I'm going to plead with him to come back home, to not throw his life away on a life of meaningless partying. But instead of doing that, he stays put. In addition, he should have, He should have been the first one to crack open the champagne when his brother got home, right? Like he should have so loved his dad that to see his dad's heart rejoicing in the return of his son and to love his brother so much that he now gets to have him in his life again, this older brother should have been the one that says, hey, let me work the grill and I'll make sure that we don't burn the fatted calf. Let let me pour the wine. Let me make sure that the music is on point. Let me orchestrate this party and host it because my brother's home and my father's full of joy. But instead, man, he doesn't care. He's outside, he's offended. And let let me let you in on a little clue here. See, some people wrongly take this story to mean that grace or forgiveness is something that's completely 100% free. They say, hey, there's no cross in this story. The dad just welcomes the kid home. Here's actually what Jesus is doing. He's showing us that one of the reasons this older brother is so offended is because to receive his brother back into his family means that it's going to cost him a huge fortune in his inheritance. Like, here's what's crazy. Um, forgiveness is totally free to the person being forgiven. Forgiveness is always costly to the person doing the forgiving. And for this older brother to really forgive his brother and for the father to forgive the brother, it means what? It means He's already squandered up to one third of all the father's wealth. And now he's back and he's made a son again. This is going to cost me, this is going to cost me thousands and thousands of dollars. Jesus is telling us that because he is everything that this older brother is not. See, because Jesus so loves the heart of his father for us as wayward human beings, he was willing to go on a distant journey to a far land and actually be born into this world to seek and to save the lost. The older brother in the story stays home. Jesus leaves home to come after you and me. The older brother in this story doesn't host the party when his brother comes home. Jesus is the one that actually is the feast that we get to dine on. Like he is so celebrating the return 
of humanity back into fellowship with God through the cross, that Jesus not only is the host, he's the meal. He's the meal. And unless you think that there's no cross in this story, forgiveness is totally free to you. It is free grace to you. You just receive it. You don't earn it. You don't add to it. But grace is infinitely costly to God. Where do I get that? Well, Jesus actually had to bear He had to bear the justice that should have been ours. Jesus pays the price for our sins and our rebellion and our waywardness and our rejection of God and our worship of God's stuff. These two brothers, these two brothers look really different. They look as different as a stripper might look different from a church lady that attends every single week but doesn't love Jesus. They might look equally different, but at the heart, at the core, both irreligion and dead religion have this in common. They don't want God. They just want his stuff. And what Jesus is doing in this text is he's just blowing up our categories. He's just saying, hey, the gospel is not just another thing. It's not another philosophy. The gospel is the great news of grace that Jesus came to seek and save through his life, his death, and his resurrection, both lost religious people and lost irreligious people. Now, what does this mean for us? Let let me say a couple of things. What does it mean? It means one, we're called as followers of Jesus that want to be a missional movement for our city, state, and nation. We're called to show the heart of our father towards both younger brothers and older brothers. We're called to have the heartbeat of God. Like, can can I just point this out, friends? Like, there are way cooler churches than our church that you can be a part of. There are churches with better facilities, better preaching, better music, better parking. There are churches that are not going to ask you, like, they're not going to ask you to go through a six-week membership class and sign a membership covenant. There's churches that aren't going to ask you to do all that, that are going to feel sexier and feel easier. Why would you be a part of this? Well, my hope and my prayer is that you would be a part of this to be a part of a group of people longing to be a missional movement that exists for those that aren't even here yet. Like, we do not want to shuffle all the Christians from all the other Christian churches in Oklahoma City into frontline. That's not a win. The goal of church planning is not to try to steal Christians from established churches that are bitter and frustrated at their last church. Go into all the world, preach the gospel, take disgruntled Christians from all the nations. Like, that's... <laughs> That's not the gospel. We want to be a group of people that are radically praying for and pursuing people that are lost like the younger brother and people that are lost like the older brother. We want to go after him as a church. In addition to that, we want to show the father's heart in partying like crazy when they come home. Uh, Pretty soon we're about to do another baptism celebration. And baptism celebrations for us should be like the feast in this story. Uh, baptism celebration should be like a moment where we blow the roof off of our buildings, where, where there is more shouting and singing and dancing and clapping and celebration than any other thing that we do because what we're celebrating in baptism is the movement of God's grace towards somebody that didn't want him, that just wanted his stuff, who's actually come to the Father through faith in the Son. We want to party about that, man. We want to celebrate that. Like, We want to be way more excited about that than how can we add more line items to our budget to make this a more comfortable church for all the Christians that already go here. 
Can I say that one more time? Like the point of our church is not being a Walmart exchange of religious goods and services for Christians that are looking for the next cool church. We want to be a missional movement that's about the gospel, that's about going after people that don't know Jesus. And then I'll say this, what this also means for us is that we want to join in Jesus's sacrificial pursuit of lost sheep, lost coins, and lost boys. We want to join that. We want that to be a sacrificial thing. Like, and here's what I mean by that. Um, we, we get to be a part of this. Can I just say, like, whatever your job is, it's really beautiful and it's a holy vocation. But one of the things that makes it so holy is it fits into a bigger story of what God's doing in the universe. Like, the thing about being a school teacher that's ultimately really beautiful is that you're getting to worship God and you're getting to nurture students and you're getting to serve your city, but you're also getting to do that if you're a Christian as a part of God's missional movement to bring people to Christ so that they can be a part of his family for all eternity. And what that means for us is this, like, Living your life for your story like, like you're the star of the film is a total waste of your life. If you're living your life today for your dreams and your kingdom and, and your little like whatever fantasy of the perfect life and that's what you're pursuing with all of your heart, which by the way, in this moment in Oklahoma City is the norm. It's like Oklahoma City is getting cooler and more beautiful, hipper buildings, hipper cafes, hipper stuff. If you think that that's what life is about, can I just tell you, you are literally flushing your life down the toilet. You're wasting it. Life's not about that. Life's not about that. Life for the Christian is that you get to share in the eternal work of God of making all things new by loving people enough to tell them about Jesus. This includes things like, like giving, like we're going to talk about giving in a minute for church planting. And like over the next five weeks, when we do this missional movement stuff, we're actually going to have some conversations about giving. And I'll give you a couple of caveats. Like one, if you're not a Christian, I don't want your money. Two, if when we talk about money, um, you bring a bunch of baggage from your last church, or your last four churches, and we talk about money and you get mad at me because of where you've been, that's more about you than me. Like you need to do some processing and some work with Jesus to get into a good place. And and I'll say like, if we talk about money and you're like, we can't talk about money, that's private and personal. I'll just say like, what do you do with the New Testament where Jesus talks about money almost more than he talks about anything else? And the reason he does so is because money can either own you or you can own money as a steward under the glory of God. And and being a part of this kind of gospel-centered movement means like, We want to hold our stuff lightly and we want to hold close to the gospel tightly so that we can actually leverage more resources to advance the kingdom of Jesus. (sighs) So as we close this, a church that grasped gospel centrality and loved the gospel and was about the gospel not about all the other things that churches can get distracted by. A great example of that is a church called the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Some of you are thinking, I've never heard of that. Is that a cool church in Edmond? It's not a cool church in Edmond. It's a church that was planted in the city of London that was pastored by a guy named Charles Spurgeon. 
And I just want to tell you a couple things about it because it's good to have some pictures of the kind of missional movement we want to be. And I'll close with this. When Spurgeon was 16 years old, he was going through a time of spiritual depression where he was worried about his soul and uh, didn't know if he was a Christian or not a Christian, didn't know if he believed the gospel or didn't believe the gospel. He was walking on a snowy day and he heard singing and prayers from this little chapel. And he walked in and inside the chapel was a primitive Methodist church, which is just an interesting model of church where you had like these blue collar guys that shared the pulpit. Uh, So you had dudes that were like plumbers and cobblers and they would preach and teach. And one day Spurgeon shows up, he comes into their service and this guy is preaching about the gospel of Jesus. And for the first time, God, the Holy Spirit awakens Spurgeon's heart to Christ. And here's what he says about this moment. He says, I can testify that the joy of that day was utterly indescribable. I could have leapt. I could have danced. There was no expression, however fanatical, that would have been out of keeping with the joy of that hour. Here's what's so crazy. Um, Spurgeon became a part of a gospel-centered movement because the gospel had captured him. We'll never be a church that's a gospel-centered movement until we're gospel-centered disciples. Amazed, like amazed. God did this for me. He pursued me. He loves me. He died in my place. Like he chose me. And then what happens is later on, Spurgeon gets called to pastor a church, Metropolitan Tabernacle. And here's what we see. A couple things I'll mention. One, they ministered in both word and deed. He loved preaching the gospel and he loved because of the gospel, loving and serving the needy and the broken. Spurgeon in that church, burned for souls. He said this, I remember when I have preached at different times in the country and sometimes here that my whole soul has agonized over men. Every nerve of my body has strained and I could have wept my very being out of my eyes and carried my whole frame away in a flood of tears if I could but win souls. It was a church that was about Jesus. And can I just say, there's a lot of cool things we could be about as a church. A lot of cool things. A lot of good things we could do, a lot of programs. There is nothing that trumps being a church that desires and fights to be centered on the gospel of Christ. Spurgeon put it like this. Some churches have one crown, some another. Our crown under God has been this. The poor have the gospel preached to them. Souls are saved and Christ is glorified. And for me, by God's help, the first and the last thing I long for is to bring men to Christ. I care nothing about fine language or petty speculations of prophecy, meaning guys that write books telling you exactly when Jesus is going to come back or a hundred dainty things, but to break the heart and bind it up, to lay hold of a sheep of Christ and bring it back to the fold is the one thing that I would live for. Man, I, I just, I love that for the last 13 years, God's been working in this church, not because we're a great church. It's not about frontline. I love that Jesus has been working in this church to bring us to this place today in his wisdom and in his sovereignty where people from all different backgrounds and cultures and different sorts of perspectives on the world can come together being unified and agreeing on the center of what we are is a Jesus-loving, Jesus-exalting, Jesus-preaching church that desires to be really simple in being all about him his cross, his resurrection, this is the good news. So today, like a couple things, if you're not a Christian, you're not invited to religion. You're not. 
You're not invited to trying to earn anything from God. You're invited to receiving a gift that's free to you, infinitely costly to God. He loves you. If you're irreligious like the younger brother and you've tried to find a meaning for your life in stuff or money or pleasure or success or work or whatever, Jesus loves you and he moves towards you in grace. If you're a person that's been religious, you're trying to earn, you're trying to build a ladder to get to God, you're, you're, you're thinking that like church attendance or your giving is what saves you and there's no joy in the gospel, you're not amazed by Jesus, you're not captured by grace, today you can repent and turn to Jesus. Come and know him. And for us as a church, what we want to be about is him. Him. That simple.